Luke chapter 24. As you're making your way there, who here is guilty of what I'm about to demonstrate? You're talking on your phone. This actually happened to me uh, last night, as a matter of fact. Um, I should mention my phone has a handy-dandy little, you know, thing for, for credit cards in it, and so my driver's license and everything. This is basically just my whole wallet. But um, I'm talking last night on the phone to my mom, and, uh, and I'm going through uh, the bank ATM. And, oh, hey, yeah, mom, I, you know, this and that, and, and you know, oh, hang on just a second, I, I'm here at the ATM, and, you know, gotta, gotta get some money, and, and so, uh, all of a sudden, I freak out, because I can't find my ATM card. I'm like, oh my gosh, mom, I, hold, I'm gonna have to call you back, and I hang up, and I go to stick it on the little magnet thing on my car, and I'm like, you idiot, it was right there, with, you know, the whole time, right, I'm talking, Tell me I'm not the only one. Anybody else here? You do that? I notice a lot of gray-haired people raising their hand right now. Okay, it's a, it's a symptom. Um, well, I tell you that story by way of introduction because in our text today, uh, the big idea, one of the, one of the main themes, one of the big ideas we're going to see is that uh, the women who had followed Jesus are freaking out. They're losing it. And, and basically, we're going to see an angel of God who, who confronts them and is reminding them, listen, what you need right now, you've already got. You've, you've, you've received this already. Just as I'm talking on the phone going, man, where is it? You've got it. It's right there. We're going to see that in our text today, and, uh, and we'll expand on that as we go. So Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they, then speaking of the women that we, that we uh, left off with in, in chapter 23, I'll come back to that, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the, the spices which they had prepared. But they found the, the stone rolled away from the tomb and then they went in and they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now, the story here is uh, picking up right where we left off last week where Jesus has been crucified. And Joseph of Arimathea, he went, he was a, a part of the Sanhedrin, um, but he was not supportive of the crucifixion. And so what Joseph did was he went to Pontius Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. Because, you know, as, as we saw, the usual practice was a person was crucified and then they were just left there to rot. And, and their body would just stay there until ultimately the wild animals and the elements and all would just take care of it. And it was just a perpetual reminder to everybody in town, don't be this guy. Don't mess with us. Don't cross us, you know? And so, uh, and, and, and <laughs> that's kind of part of the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Their attitude was, you don't mess with us, we won't mess with you. Uh, that is, after we've conquered your city and taken over, right? And, uh, and so, but if you, were, if you were a person of means or if, you were, if your family, you know, had some sort of influence, um, they could go to the, to the Roman officials, and they could say, hey, we want to give, you know, this decedent, we want to give them a proper burial. So Joseph of Arimathea, he went ahead um, and he did that. And, uh, and it's implied that Pilate said yes because he took the body and he took it to his own private tomb. 
And uh, there, John's gospel tells us, Nicodemus met him there. Nicodemus was also part of the Sanhedrin. He was the famously, uh, John chapter three, he's the one that came to Jesus by night, Nick at night, right? He comes to see, uh, he comes to see Jesus um, and Jesus there famously tells him, among other things, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe him would not perish but have everlasting life. And so clearly it had an effect on Nicodemus as well. He's clearly not consenting to all of this. And so the two of them together, they wrapped and prepared Jesus' body. They put it in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. And um, the typical practice of the day when a person was entombed was that they would prepare the body with spices and oils and they would uh, have the person um, then placed in the tomb. They would seal the tomb and the stone that they would seal the tomb with weighed several tons. And, uh, and so they would do that. They would roll it in place and they would leave the person in there um, for, for a, a long period of time, several months, um, sometimes even uh, a period of years. They would leave them in there and they, they then would come back later and then what they would do at that time is they would take the bones and they would place them in what is known as an ossuary. And uh, an ossuary is just a, a small box. And that ossuary would stay in the tomb and ultimately that would become the family tomb and, uh, until the whole family there entombed and all, each one of them you know, prepared in this way. Well, what happened with Jesus was because um, the Sabbath was approaching, because of the timing of, their, of his crucifixion, uh, these guys hastily prepared the body. They wrapped it and all. But the, the women had followed them, and uh, they took note of where Jesus had been laid. And, uh, and so they said, hey, we're, we're going to observe uh, the, uh, the necessary um, uh, Sabbath day rest um, but uh, prior to it, they were preparing all the spices. And so they, they endeavored, hey, we're going to get down there and we're going to actually properly prepare Jesus's body. And of course, they've got this issue that the stone is there. And Mark's gospel records that when the women uh, were on their way, that they were actually concerned about the stone. Here's what it says. It says, very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb uh, when the sun had risen, and they said among themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. Now, let me just say this, that this right here, um, right, this is the classic Easter verse. This is the, the cornerstone, the bedrock of our Christian faith that here on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, that's, by the way, why traditionally we as Christians uh, celebrate church on the first day of the week. That's why we often celebrate uh, our uh, Easter services. We have an Easter sunrise service, and that's in, in light of this scripture, that very early in the morning on the first day of the week, <coughs> these women came to the tomb intending to, to you know, anoint the Lord and prepare him for his proper burial, but they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Understand, the stone was not rolled away to let Jesus out. The stone was rolled away to let us in, to let us see that Jesus, in fact, had been raised from the dead. And we can say that authoritatively because the scriptures reveal um, that uh, Jesus, in his resurrected form, 
He, he, could, he could go through walls. He was resurrected bodily, but, but you know, this just a supernatural thing to where, you know, he could, he could just appear in places. He could, he could, you know, go through, you know, these places. So, so the stone wasn't rolled away for, for his benefit. It was rolled away for our benefit. And the benefit is this, that really the whole cornerstone bedrock of Christianity is that Jesus Christ died for sin, but that the grave couldn't hold him. And that he rose again, conquering Satan and sin and death. And the New Testament is very clear that if we will place our faith in Jesus and and trusting that he's taken all of our sin upon himself, he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so Jesus took the sin upon himself and he died. He paid the penalty for your sin. Your sin past, your sin present, and your sin future. It's all been paid. And then the grave couldn't hold him. He rose from the dead. And that is, a, that is, a, that is good news for us, guys, that, that we too will rise. That we will rise in, as we place our faith and our hope and our trust in Jesus make him Lord and Savior, that, that we will rise again. And he who began a good work in you, the Bible promises, will be faithful to complete it. And so we look forward to that day. And so uh, they come and, and here's you know, what they encounter. And so verse four says, it happened as they were greatly perplexed. Pay attention to that phrase. They were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men... Angels stood by them in shining garments. <clears throat> and then as they were afraid and they bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still <clears throat> in Galilee, saying the, the son of man, um, Sorry, I lost my spot. Uh, in Galilee, saying the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. They're quoting Jesus' words and they, these women, remembered his words. So here we see they are perplexed. That word perplexed, it literally in the Hebrew, it, it means to, uh, or I'm sorry, in the Greek, it means to be torn asunder to the point of despair. Uh, and you're just, their guts are ripped out and they are despairing. They completely lost it. Who here can relate to a time when you are gutted like a fish? Perplexed, I don't understand what's happening you know, God, what is it that you're doing? And, and, and you just lose it, right? And so here just the angel, these angels appear to him. And, and by the way, you know, it's reminiscent of when the angel appeared to the shepherds to announce Jesus's birth. Right now we've got two angels uh, appearing to these women to announce his resurrection. Such an incredible theme. And their emphasis is what I want to drive home and kind of take a walk with this morning. Their emphasis is what Jesus said. Their emphasis is on what Jesus promised. And this is a recurring theme that we're going to see through our text today. We see it here in verses 6 and 7 as the angels are really emphasizing the words of Jesus. Look, Jesus promised this. You shouldn't be, you shouldn't be freaking out right now. You shouldn't be gutted like a fish right now because Jesus said, this is what's going to happen. 
And we're going to see it as we move on. We're going to see Jesus encountering a couple of disciples on the road to Emmaus. These are not the, the 12 disciples that are so often named. Uh, one of them's uh, anonymous. The other one will be named. But basically, um, Jesus is going to emphasize to them uh, as well, hey, you guys are ignorant of the word. And, and, and we're going to see that in a minute. Listen, what you need to know is that God says what he means. God means what he says. He does what he's saying he's going to do. Absolutely. And, you know, just on this point of resurrection, it arguably and, and admittedly, um, it's, it's hard to believe, Right? I mean, you, you encounter people and, and skeptics and all, and they're like, raised from the dead. Like, really? Like, you know, you just, he's raised from, who's, who's raised from the dead like that? And, and the, the skepticism will either go along the lines of, well, he didn't really die. And some people argue that today. Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He, he just passed out and they revived him, you know, the kind of thing. Or people will say, oh no, you know, the disciples stole his body. He didn't really resurrect. It was just something that the disciples did. Well, listen, understand that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most well-documented events in ancient history. Um, E.M. Blakelock of Auckland University, he said this. He said, the historical evidence for the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is better authenticated than most of the facts of ancient history. Uh, he's joined by uh, another uh, noted scholar, Brooks Foss uh, Westcott uh, of Cambridge University. He said, taking all the evidence together, there is no historic incident better or more variously supported than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I think that guy actually is, uh, is, is a non-believer. Um, and so, and yet he's saying, look, the evidence is there. It's supported. Uh, and listen, indeed, the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, it's the foundation of Christianity. Um, it, is, it is absolutely foundational. The Apostle Paul said that Christianity, our faith, is worthless if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Here's how he said it to the Corinthians. If Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. Look, if this did not happen, then there's no point in being here. You might as well be home watching football right now if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. It's that important. But the fact is, the Bible says that Christ has been raised from the dead. The Bible says that Jesus has become the first of a great harvest of all who have died. In other words, he rose from the dead. We will rise from the dead. Paul says it's a fact. And listen, it is undeniably documented. Here's some of the proof. Um, we read today, the boulder moved away several tons and uh, it was moved away and, and it would have taken several people. It's a huge ordeal for them to roll the stone either into place or out of the way. And uh, a lot harder to roll it out of the way because typically there's a channel, you know, at the base of the tomb and it usually has a little downward slope and they've got the stone that's been carved and is ready to move and it's usually, you know, got a chalk on it, it's blocked, but then they'll move that away and it's easier to move it into place than it is to move out of the place. And okay, theoretically, the disciples could have gotten together and done it, but the Jews had asked Pontius Pilate to post a Roman guard 
And there were, there were 16 Roman soldiers guarding the tomb. And, and this was undetected by them. You know, they would have killed somebody if they would have, you know, discovered it. But it was undetected. That's one of the proofs. The, f- the fact that the, the tomb was empty is another proof. And it was universally attested to be empty by both believers and non-believers. Another thing that both believers and non-believers agreed upon was that Jesus was seen after he was resurrected. Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15 that there were over 500 eyewitnesses of Jesus being resurrected. And not all of those eyewitnesses were believers, by the way. And it wasn't refuted. I mean, you know, you go to a court of law, eyewitness testimony, that'll put you away. Like that is the strongest evidence in a court of law is eyewitness testimony. And over 500 eyewitnesses come up and say, hey, I saw Jesus rise from the dead. Then you're like, how can you refute that? Among another compelling proof, uh, the evidence of the changed lives of the disciples. This proves the resurrection as well. Before, the, 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 before and leading up to the crucifixion, we saw this together, the disciples scattered, they all bailed, right? But after Jesus rose from the dead, they all, with the exception of the apostle Paul, um, who also suffered greatly, but they all suffered martyrs' deaths willingly. Peter, he was, they were going to crucify Peter. According to church history, he said, look, if you're going to crucify me, I don't want to be crucified like my Lord. Crucify me upside down. And that's how he died. Others were, were, were you know, were stoned to death, pushed off the Temple Mount. James, the half-brother of Jesus, who, by the way, denied Jesus for, for all the way up through his ministry. Thought he was crazy. The resurrection of Jesus Christ made him a believer. And so there are, there's great evidence of Jesus' life, of his death, of his burial, of his resurrection. Um, and, and, you know, thousands of years before Jesus Christ ever came to the earth, there were hundreds of prophecies that were given about the Messiah, right? And th- over 300 prophecies fulfilled in Jesus' life and, and in his ministry, the way he was born, the way that he died. It, it's just an absolute incredible thing to consider. One of the most remarkable, I think, and I'll just mention it briefly, is back in Luke 19, Jesus makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And this event happened on April 6th, 32 AD. Um, Daniel, the prophet, hundreds of years before this, 483 years before this, to be exact, he, he, he prophesied the very date that it would happen. And he nailed it to the day. And people have, you know, biblical scholars, I say that with air quotes and contempt, but biblical scholars have have said, well, Daniel was written later, really. It was written later than it actually was. That's, he, you know, who could do that? Well, and then they dug up the Dead Sea Scrolls and they authenticated (laughs) that, oh gosh, I guess it was written earlier, right? And uh, it's just incredible. All of these things, hey, proven fact. Here's the point. God's word. God's word says what it means. It means what it says. God is, his, his word is authoritative. And that's what these angels now declare to these women. 
Notice again, verses six and seven. He is not here, but he's risen. Remember, here's what he says. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee saying, and now he quotes Jesus, the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And verse eight says simply, they remembered his words. They remembered his words. Now that word remembered, literally, it means to return to one's mind, okay? What does that mean? Here's what it means, the implication, because you're like, well, duh, that's remember. You return to your mind. I get it. Like I did, I really need the definition. But, but here's what I want you to see. The implication of that is that it was already in their mind. They'd already received it. This is why he says, remember what Jesus said to you. It's like me on the the cell phone. It's like, all of a sudden I remember, I've got it. It's right here. I've got it. And these women, hey, it's right there. You've got it. And what happened to them is that they were shaken. Things didn't go like they had planned. And so now what happens is they, they see this, to them, this tragic turn of events, their Messiah butchered in front of them, their hopes and dreams up in smoke, nothing that they expected, and now they're gutted like a fish. And let me just hit the pause button and go to application right now for you and me. Have you ever been gutted like a fish in a situation like this? Things don't go like you expected. Things aren't going like you expected. You have, you know, something adverse happens. This last week, I, um, I had to take a day off because my dad was going in for a procedure. And, uh, it, you know, it was a heart catheterization. And, and, you know, I know these are very common today. My dad's actually had 20 angioplasties over the years. And he's got something like 12 or 14 stints in his heart already. But he's 85 years old. And so he goes in and and we're thinking, okay, come on, man. Let's just get some more stints in there and be good. And the the cardiologist comes out and, and punched us in the gut. And he basically said, it's pretty serious. And I don't think I can, I don't think I can do this. I think he's going to need open heart surgery. As I see it, he's going to need at least a triple bypass. He's got, you know, all of these things. And, um, and I just got to tell you, it just, it's just a sucker punch, man. And, and there are just no good options. I mean, I, I would ask, if you think about my, uh, my dad this next week, you could pray for him. He's, the team of doctors had to meet together. We still haven't got a result of, of what they're comfortable doing, but there are just no good options because they can't do angioplasty, so it's either open-heart surgery on an 85-year-old man, or, or we just, the clock is ticking, which it, I understand it's ticking for all of us, but man, hard news. And I, you guys are dealing with things. You guys are dealing with your own things as well. News happens, things come, you know, and you're, you're devastated. These women devastated. Things not going like they expected. And what they're doing right now, as they come to the grave, they're, they're, they're grief-stricken, they are mourning, and, and their mind is all about loss and a loss of hope, and now they're focused on graves and grave clothes. And Jesus' promise to them, here's my point, 
it seems like a million miles away. They'd, they'd, they'd completely lost sight of what Jesus had said. You get sucker punched sometimes, and, and you know, it's, I kind of like, see it like Peter. If you remember Jesus on the, uh, on the Sea of Galilee, and, and the wind and the waves are going, and the, the disciples are straining there at the oars, um, and, and they've been, you know, he'd commanded them to go to the other side, but man, they just were not making a lot of headway. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes out walking on the water, and they're freaking out, and then Peter gets the guts to say, Lord, if that's you, bid that I should come to you. And, and the Lord's like, Come on out, Pete. The water's great, you know. And he gets out of the boat and he begins walking on the water. But then what happens is he, he sees, the text tells us, he sees the wind and the waves. He's taking his eyes off the Lord and he's looking at his circumstances and he begins to sink. And so often we, we can be that way, but now we've got a dramatic contrast in, Acts, in the book of Acts, Acts 20. The Apostle Paul, he, he pulls together the Ephesian elders. He's talking to them. And, uh, and basically, he's talking to them about all the trials that he's been through. He's on his way to Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit has revealed that he's going to be, you know, once he gets there, he's going to be imprisoned. And, you know, people are warning him not to go and all. And so he's telling the Ephesian elders, hey, these are all the trials I've been through. This is the trials that await me. And, and, and you know, what he says in that, He says this, Acts chapter 20, verse 19. I have done the Lord's work humbly and with many tears. I have endured the trials that came to me from the plots of the Jews. As I said, he goes on to talk about the trials that awaken him or that await him. But then he continues and he says famously, but none of these things move me, Acts 20, 24. Nor do I count my life dear to myself. Listen, why? So that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry, this is the key, which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of grace. (coughs) Paul says, look, the storms of life have hit me hard. I've been through a lot of trials, but that's not gonna move me. And you gotta answer the question this morning, whatever you are going through right now, is it going to move you? Because Paul said, this isn't going to move me. And why wasn't it going to move him? Because he remembered what Jesus had said. I, I, I got to finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of grace of God. Well, when did he receive that? Well, Acts chapter 9 verse 15 tells us what God said about and to Saul. He said, Saul is my chosen instrument. This is what God said. Saul's my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel and I will show him how much he must suffer for me. God had spoken and Paul remembered. Guys, listen, God has spoken and you and I need to remember. And when you are going through the storms, through the trials, through the situations, through the thing that you have hit hard, in that moment, you have to stop and you have to reflect and you have to say, wait a minute, what's God's word say? What does God's word say to me right now? Because we can lose hope, we can lose sight, we can forget what God has promised to us. 
And so often we get into trial, we get into a circumstance, we get into a situation where we think, God, you know, if there was a God in heaven, why would he allow me to be going through this? Why, why does God not intervene? Why did God allow this person to die? Why does God allow that person to suffer? And listen, among other things, the Bible says that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. We've seen recently in Luke's gospel how he said to Peter, Satan has asked for you to sift you like wheat and you sift wheat by crushing it and tossing it around. And Jesus basically said, I'm going to allow it. Why? Because the sifting gets rid of the chaff. And the chaff is a biblical illustration of sin in our life. And there are those things that God wants to do in you. Maybe a sin, you know, sins that he wants to, to break away from you or some sort of a purifying work in your life. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in the day of Jesus Christ. But we don't always recognize the, the bad things that God allows in order to accomplish something good. All we can focus on is why God, where God, how God, what on earth? And, and we, can, we can be perplexed, we can be overwhelmed. Well, I want you to see now, holding that thought, there in verse 5, these angels say something key to, to these women. They said, why do you seek the living among the dead? Why do you seek the living among the dead? Now, for these women, they're mourning and lamenting because they've forgotten Jesus' promise to them. But listen, point of application, there are many who look for life in dead things, aren't there? There's many who look for life in dead things, dead religion, dead works, dead pursuits, uh, riches, possessions, addictions, selfish pleasures. There's a lot of things that promise life but deliver death. It's the age-old ploy of Satan, right? He masquerades himself as an angel of light. And there are those things that promise life, but they really lead to death. Why do you seek the living among the dead? I like what C.S. Lewis said. He said, human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God to make him happy. Let me ask you, what about you? Are you seeking life among dead things today? Is there, is there something that, that is, you, you, you just can't let go of? I, I think of that picture of the, uh, the monkey. I don't know if this is true, but the, the story is told that, that the, in a monkey trap, they just put the, the fruit inside of a basket that's just big enough for him to slide his hand through, but then when he gets his hand around it, he can't pull his hand back out. And what's he got to do? All he's got to do is let go of it, and he'll be free, but he won't let go. And so he becomes monkey super, whatever they do with them, I don't know. <laughs> now, whether or not that's true, it's a great picture for you and me that there are those things that we hang on to. We go, oh, this is life. And the Lord would say, you're seeking the living among the dead right now. Paul said, when you were slaves to sin, you were free from the obligation to do right. 
And what was the result? You are now ashamed of the things you used to do, things that end in eternal doom. But the answer that these angels give to these women, they say, look, you're, why you look for the living among the dead? Jesus is not here. He's risen. That's the answer for us today. Jesus has risen from the dead. He's conquered Satan and sin and death. And today, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can. You can place your faith and hope in him. And the Bible says that we are to repent. Let me tell you what repent, repentance is. It's not do good, try harder. It's not, okay, I'm going to clean my life up and come to God. Re- repenting is recognizing that you're a sinner and crying out to the Lord. And it begins with, a, with a, 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 just a, a hand raised to the Lord to say, God, I'm convicted, I'm a sinner. And I believe that you're the savior and I believe that you died on the cross for my sin in my place, that there's nothing I could do, but Jesus, that you did it. And you rose from the dead. You conquered Satan's sin and death. Jesus, you're risen, raise me up. Raise me up. That's the first step of, of repentance. Giving your life to God. I'll give you that invitation today. And so verse 9, these gals remembered Jesus' words. And then they returned from the tomb. They told all these things to the 11 and to all the rest. Can you imagine how they returned? Like, you know, they just could not get there quick enough. Like, you know, all of them talking at once, I'm sure. And it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles, (laughs) verse 11, and their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. That that phrase, idle tales, in the, uh, the Greek, it means the babbling of a fevered, crazy person. They're like, your enchilada has slid right off your plate, lady. You know, you have lost it. But Peter, verse 12, he arose and he ran to the tomb and stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. Amazing. The gospels tell us, you know, that that the linen cloths were, were neatly folded. And, uh, and, you know, we always think of, you know, oh, hey, I'm folding these and putting them down. No, the idea is Jesus just passed right through them. They're folded just the way they had been wrapped around him. They just saw the empty shell. But Jesus was gone. And this is what Peter sees. Verse 13, now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things, which had happened. And so it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were restrained. And so they did not see him. And he said to them, what kind of a conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? And then one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem and have you not known the things which happened there these days? What are you new? Are you kidding me? You don't know this? And Jesus said to them, what things? And so they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth who, Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, 
and the word, uh, uh, mighty indeed in the word, before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us, blew our minds. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Notice Jesus' response here. He said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Jesus came up to him. He he rolled up to him. You guys are sad. You're downcast. What's going on? And they are talking in defeated terms. And Jesus is, is rebuking them saying, hey, you've been told all this. You got, you got, it, it, it's all right there, baby. It is right there. You've received all this and you're slow of heart to believe all that's been spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself and then they drew near to the village where they were going and Jesus indicated that he would have gone farther but they constrained him saying abide with us for it is towards evening and the day is far spent and he went in to stay with them and now it came to pass as he sat at the table with them that he took bread he blessed and he broke it and he gave it to them and then their eyes were opened and they knew him and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? Oh, wouldn't you have loved to have been there? Just to hear Jesus open the scriptures and say, there I am, there I am, there I am. This is talking about me. That's talking about me. Let me explain this story to you. Man, the best Bible study you ever, you ever sat in. And so they, they rose up that very hour, and they returned to Jerusalem, and they found the 11, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord is risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. That's not recorded here, but apparently in the process, Jesus has shared with them that he's, he's appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Now, Again, the point, the emphasis, God's word, God's word. Hey, listen, you've you've received God's word. The New Living Translation uh, translates verse 25 this way when Jesus speaks to them. Jesus said to them, you foolish people, you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. You don't believe, you heard this. It's It's in you, you've received this. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, verse 27 tells us that Jesus expounded to them all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, as we've gone through Luke, we've done this a little bit, 
right? We've had occasion to go to the Old Testament scriptures and see how Jesus is revealed there. A couple of them uh, talking about Jesus, Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22, both of them talking about his coming death and how he's going to suffer. And we've looked at that. Uh, Isaiah 53, Jesus is, is, the Messiah is called a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, despised and rejected by men. He bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows, Isaiah says. He was stricken and smitten by God. That he was wounded for our transgressions. That he was bruised for our sins, Isaiah says. And by his stripes, we are healed written about Jesus and the time that would come that he would suffer. Psalm 22 vividly describes events of the cross. Hundreds of years in advance, by the way. But the psalmist writes about his bones being dislocated and the piercing of his hands and of his feet. Before crucifixion was even invented, the psalmist wrote those words. The psalmist continues talking about how they would divide and cast lots for his clothing. That happened. You can't fake that. You can't engineer that. Describes the mocking crowd. Describes them saying, hey, save yourself. Things the people actually shouted and taunted. And it also includes Jesus' cry from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Really, every book in the Bible points to Jesus, guys. The psalmist declared this. Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book or in the volume of the book, it is written of me. In other words, hey, I'm, in, I'm, I'm from cover to cover, baby. It is about me, the Lord would say. Now, not only is the, do the Old Testament scriptures uh, speak of Christ's death, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 4, that the Old Testament scriptures also speak of his resurrection. For example, Jesus used the story of Jonah In the great fish and being swallowed by the great fish, he himself used that story to illustrate how he would be buried and resurrected. Old Testament story. One of the more obscure but fascinating Old Testament scriptures is, again, in Psalm 22, where Jesus says, or the psalmist says this, but these are are the words of the Lord, I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. And that word worm in the Hebrew, it's the word tola, and it comes from the tola worm. Uh, and the, the tola worm was where, uh, where they got a certain dye from. And so he, he says, and I'll explain that in a minute, but he says, I'm a worm and no man, a tola. Well, a tola wor- worm, you know, God reveals himself in his creation. What does the tola worm do? It, it, it has there on the tree, it covers its eggs with its own body and it affixes itself to the tree, right? And then what happens is it dies and its offspring feed on its body and it leaves a red crimson stain. This is where they, they get the dye from. It leaves, it, it's affixed to a tree, it dies, it leaves a red crimson stain, its offspring feed on its body And then a few days go by, three days go by, and that scarlet stain turns white, it flakes away, and then what happens is you've got the newly hatched offspring that now have life. Which, by the way, gives new meaning to Isaiah 118, which says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be 
as wool. And that word crimson there in the Hebrew is tola. It's a tola worm. And the point is, Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection, they've always been part of God's plan of redemption. They've always been a part of it. It's been said there are five things that happen when you don't read and believe your Bible, okay? And that's the point here. That's this recurring thing we see throughout the text. Ladies, you should have remembered this. You're freaking out right now. Jesus told you he was going to be resurrected. Guys, on the road to Emmaus, you're freaking out right now. And what you should have remembered is the, the prophets foretold of all of this, and you have it, and you shouldn't be freaking. Five things that happen when you don't read and believe your Bible. Number one, your faith is diminished. Secondly, your sin is distorted. Thirdly, your hope is diluted. Fourthly, your service is deflated. And lastly, your love is deadened. And we see a few of these things going on with these guys on the road to Emmaus, right? Their faith is diminished. Notice, what do they say? He was a prophet. Past tense, defeated terms. Their hope is diluted. We were hoping, we were hoping, don't hope anymore, but we were hoping that he was gonna come and, and be the Messiah we'd hoped for. Their service is deflated, and maybe this is me reading too much into it, but good grief, they're, they're on the road to Emmaus. They're leaving town, and they're leaving town with their tail between their legs, speaking in defeated terms. Jesus is like, geez, you guys are all sad, man. What's going on? Their, their service is deflated. And what needs to happen? Well, what do we see? They hightail it back once they're, once they, once they're believing in the scriptures, once they're remembering what Jesus has said. Listen, our response to the gospel is not merely a transitional event, guys. It's a continuing ascent. We have to receive it. We have to stand in it and upon it. And we need to hold fast to it. That's my encouragement to you today. I got three questions as we close. We saw in verse four that these women were perplexed, that they were gutted like a fish, torn asunder to the point of despair. But they were delivered when they remembered. And so question number one for you is, what causes you to despair? I want you to take a walk with that. What, are, what is it that causes you to despair? To forget? to lose sight of God's faithfulness, to lose sight of what God has promised. Number two, have you sought out what God's word has to say about your situation? Maybe you're there today, you're in despair. Have you read God's word? Have you looked out and have you cried out in God in prayer? I'm in despair. Would you speak to me from your word? Thirdly, what hinders you from remembering or believing God's word? What is it? What hinders you? Ask the Lord to reveal in your life, what is it that hinders you from being able to believe and receive and act upon in faith God's word?